from the heart of our nation's capital, here's Family Research Council President Tony Perkins. Good evening and welcome to Washington Watch. My name is Joseph Backholm. I'm a senior fellow for Biblical Worldview at Family Research Council. It's my pleasure to be sitting in for Tony today and with you. As a reminder, the website is TonyPerkins.com. You've heard a lot this week about how the culture, and in fact, the lame duck Congress, is working hard to undermine and silence biblical values in the public square. No matter how dark the world gets, you can count on Family Research Council to shine the light and speak the truth in love. As 2022 draws to a close, will you help accelerate our mission to equip Millions of believers to stand for the word of God and our freedoms in 2023 and beyond. Thanks to a special year-end challenge match by Friends of FRC, your gift will have double the impact if received before December 31st. So please join today at 800-225-4008 or visit TonyPerkins.com. That's 1-800-225-4008 or visit TonyPerkins.com. Everything you see here is made possible because of friends like you, and we are so grateful for it. Today on the program, is Disney regretting its opposition to parental rights legislation in Florida? And is Apple partnering with the Chinese communists to help stop protesters? We'll talk about that and the latest in corporate politics in the program later. Also, Senator Cynthia Lummis made some interesting arguments on the floor of the Senate last night before voting to redefine marriage. We'll let you hear what she said, and we'll talk about it as well. Also, does the marriage bill offer real protections for religious freedom or not? And what's going to happen when it moves to the House? All of that coming up a little bit later. But our headlines for today... Last night, the U.S. Senate passed the so-called Respect for Marriage Act with 12 Republican senators supporting the law codifying a redefinition of marriage. The bill now returns to the House of Representatives for a final vote there, where it is expected to pass in the Democrat-controlled Chamber of Congress. Viewers and listeners of Washington Watch will recall that 47 Republican Congress members voted in support of the initial bill last June. So it will be interesting to see how many of those 47 Republicans change course now that the threats to religious freedom in the bill are understood. Joining me now to discuss this and more is U.S. Representative Warren Davidson. He serves on the House Financial Services Committee and the House Select Committee on the Economy. He represents Ohio's 8th Congressional District. Congressman Davidson, welcome back. Uh, Good evening, Joseph. Always an honor to join you all. Good to see you. What's your reaction to the news out of the Senate last night that they have passed this bill, uh, repealing DOMA, redefining marriage in federal statute? Uh, Very sad. I mean, mourning, frankly. It's really sad to see people that have sworn an oath to support and defend our Constitution. The first article of the First Amendment uh, defends religious freedom, not just the non-establishment clause, Congress shall make no law establishing a religion, but it also gives us the free exercise of religion. And that, of course, is an individual right, just like the Second Amendment doesn't protect the right of the military or the police to keep weapons. It protects the right of individual citizens to carry weapons. This law law that passed the Senate on marriage basically uh, says the government will protect, you know, uh, government-recognized nonprofits in churches, but it totally undermines uh, individual religious freedom. Now, this bill is now moving from the Senate to the House. You and your colleagues will take this up. Talked in the open about the fact that there were 47 Republican members of the House that voted for it the first time it was considered. What do you expect the second time? Uh, Well, I know some people will change their votes. And unfortunately, some people might actually go the other way and say, oh, they passed an amendment that protects religious freedom. So now they'll vote for it. Uh, It's sad to see anybody fall for this. Uh, you know, window dressing. And, and, you know, part of it, they said, well, you know, Obergefell has passed and a loving passed. And so we're just protecting what has already been recognized by the court. And no, they have an enforcement mechanism in here that really gets at, you know, decisions like the Masterpiece Cake uh, Theater. And people don't understand that decision. They think that the baker wouldn't sell cakes uh, to certain people. No, they wouldn't make wedding cakes and attend weddings and serve wedding cakes at a wedding that they didn't recognize in line with their faith. They were selling cakes or flowers in the flower shop case, 
to anybody that came into their store. It was the specific marriage uh, issue. And so my hope is that we don't just have two Supreme Court justices that will defend religious freedom, that we have the whole bench will say, no, religious freedom, the free exercise clause applies to individuals, not just to nonprofits and churches, because that's where this is headed. It's definitely headed for court. All right. Congressman Davidson, do you believe that the debate over religious freedom in this bill is a sincere one or is the appearance of religious uh, religious freedom protections just there to give those who are really inclined to vote for uh, cover so that they can do really what their instincts tell them they want to do? Yeah, this is fake. I mean, complete astroturf. And Mike Lee and Marco Rubio, but really Lee's amendment was the one that actually had teeth in it. Uh, and that's why they you know, passed. I was glad. That, that, that Republicans overwhelmingly supported it, but it did not pass. And without the Lee Amendment, it, the bill shouldn't have passed at all. And, and frankly, we should still be defending, you know, marriage as a, a sacrament, frankly, you know, a union between one man and one woman. And, and at least it does protect that for churches, uh, which is more than the bill that passed the House when 47 Republicans voted for it. So it is better in that sense than the version that passed the House. And that's my fear is that some of my colleagues in the House will go for the window dressing, and and I just hope that they don't. Congressman Davidson, I want to switch topics with you. The Department of Defense sent its annual China military power report to Congress yesterday. It indicates that though Taiwan is squarely in China's crosshairs, that they do not believe an invasion is imminent. What are your thoughts on the developments there? Well, the Pentagon report that uh, they sent to Congress is about 200 pages. I can't say I've read all of it. I've read the summary and the highlights and some of the things I dug into detail. And, you know, I I am concerned about the Taiwan issue. And it's encouraging to say that they don't think it's imminent. But clearly, the Chinese military is preparing uh, for that contingency. They're equipping and staffing and building weapon systems that would facilitate that mission. Uh, And, you know, the other thing that the report addresses is their COVID policy, and it was nice to see Joe Biden, uh, uh, the Biden administration, at least some reference to, to protests, including in China. Uh, but I think part of the reason they've been so reluctant to criticize China's zero COVID policies is, frankly, that's what Joe Biden tried to do to our own country uh, and uh, wasn't able to get away with it. But if he could, there really aren't a whole lot of policies they're doing that he wouldn't support. Well, the report also notes that the Chinese Communist Party used the chaotic military withdrawal from Afghanistan to portray the U.S. as both an unreliable international partner and a nation in decline. But as you might expect, the White House sees this differently. Secretary of Defense uh, John Kirby was asked about this over the weekend. Here's what he had to say. Let's play clip one. And I don't know that uh, that's the Pentagon's assessment that it was a propaganda gift uh, to to China. If anything, uh, nations like China and Russia took a look at what we did in Afghanistan. And we've talked about this many, many times over the last year uh, and and had to marvel uh, at the speed, the efficiency of the effectiveness uh, that a very small number, a very small number of troops. Brian, you listen to me now. Hear me out. A small number of troops were able to move that many Afghans safely out of that country. Uh, No other nation in the world can do that. Congressman Davidson, uh, did the Chinese government marvel at the effectiveness of the U.S. military in Afghanistan? Now, uh, sadly, they see Joe Biden for what he is. He's weak. And, you know, not just China, Russia, everyone else, including our allies, sees Joe Biden as weak. Uh, and unfortunately, he, he is going to continue to be our commander in chief. And it looks like people are con- committed to keeping the same failed team with Antony Blinken as secretary of state, Lloyd Austin as secretary of defense. Mark Milley is chairman of the Joint Chiefs. I think they should all be fired, uh, along with Mayorkas, because border security is a component of national security. Uh, we look weak on the world stage, and we especially look weak uh, to China, and they're projecting strength. Uh, that's not what's coming out of Afghanistan. You don't have to have worn our nation's uniforms, served a single day in the military to know that first you take the civilians out, then you take the military out. We were using the Taliban to filter who got to leave. Uh, You know, the Biden administration said the Taliban wouldn't wind up in control of Afghanistan, just like everything else. That's always false. And everyone saw it for what it was. Continuing on the subject of China, we've seen the Chinese government begin cracking down on the ongoing protests there. However, major Chinese cities, Guangzhou and Chongqing, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, announced an easing of COVID restrictions today. Is this evidence that the protests are working? 
I think it is. And, you know, they've, they've um, had strong, um, you know, protest activity in China and the party, you know, just like they want to stay in power. Uh, they've been pretty ruthless, frankly, in their imposition of a zero COVID policy. And, you know, I think eventually my fear was they're going to be even more brutal in their crackdown. And privately, they may very well be doing that. They've built uh, detention facilities for all sorts of people in China. So, you know, I wouldn't count this first wave as the action. They just want to change the public narrative early and be seen as doing something and being responsive. Uh, but fundamentally, if they don't get back to making things better for the average Chinese uh, citizen, uh, the Chinese Communist Party is going to have a tenuous grip on power. And I think a lot of people realize that under Xi Jinping, they see the threat, and that's making Xi Jinping crack down even harder. Uh, we'll see whether he develops any real rivals inside the party, but we saw what happened to Hu Jintao, and that was meant to send a message. Now, with respect to these protests, it's not the first time. These are actually somewhat common in China, in different parts of the country, that these protests uh, spring up. How should the White House be responding to this, if at all? Well, look, they've been weak in responding to the protests in Iran, too. I mean, we should be looking. These are enemies of our country, uh, at least the governments are. But the Iranian people, we should be supporting the people in Iran. We should be supporting the people in, in China, just like we were, at least at the time, we were supporting the people in Hong Kong, and we were rightly condemning the action of the Chinese Communist Party and Xi Jinping as the leader of that party. And I think that's the right action right now in China. And look, it's, it's their country, but the average citizen in China wants the same kinds of things that the average citizen in America wants. Uh, and I think, look, the evidence is in, and part of this is people seeing whether it really is the World Cup or not, they're saying, hey, these policies really aren't based on science and they're not keeping me safe. These policies are wrecking my life, they're wrecking my culture, and they're wrecking my country. And people are seeing that all over the world, not just here in America, just because of the power that the Chinese Communist Party has, they've been able to get away with it longer than other countries. But you had Western democracies imposing almost the same sort of policies. It was pretty rich to see uh, Justin Trudeau uh, talk about the right of uh, Chinese people to protest while he was being pretty brutal in his crackdown methods uh, on the people of Canada when the trucker protest was going on. Point well taken. Last question, Congressman. About a minute left. Hakeem Jeffries, Congressman Hakeem Jeffries, will be the new leader of the House Democrats taking over from Nancy Pelosi. Your thoughts on this change? Well, I'm really excited to see Nancy Pelosi leave a leadership position. I'd like to see her leave the House. Uh, that's up to the people of her district. But I am glad that the Democrats are moving on to a new generation of leadership. I hope they're more collaborative and, um, and, and helpful than uh, Pelosi and the team that's been there. Uh, but I'm glad they're going to be in the minority. So we have to get our own act in, in, uh, together as Republicans, and we have to hit the ground running on January 3rd and, frankly, do what we said we would do. Uh, and, you know, I look forward to having the chance to serve in the majority again. Well, there are many of us who are grateful that there will be some uh, uh, a counterbalance in Congress uh, to the Biden administration for the next couple of years. It will be interesting to see how this new leadership in the House, if it is in fact any different than the old leadership. Congressman Davidson, thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you. Coming up next in the world of corporate politics, there appears to be some good news as the old president of Disney, who is now the new president of Disney, seems to be backing away from their culture wars. We'll give you the details when we come back right here on Washington Watch. Would you like to spend consistent time in God's word? Then join Family Research Council on an exciting journey through the Bible. FRC's two-year Bible reading plan helps you to approach daily Bible reading intentionally. You will dive deeper into the nature of God and how His Word speaks into cultural issues of today. All wisdom comes from God, and He has given us the Bible as a way to understand the world. His Word is necessary in our lives, so much so that Christ said, we are to live on every word that comes from the mouth of God. He calls it our daily bread because we need it daily to sustain us and nourish us spiritually just like food does physically. Start this adventure today with Family Research Council. When you sign up, we'll text you with daily passages and questions that help prepare you for conversations with your friends and family. To begin this journey, visit frc.org slash Bible.
1 Peter 3.15 instructs us to always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks for a reason for the hope that we have. The mission of FRC's online center for biblical worldview is to carry out that verse by training Christians to advance and defend the faith in their families, communities, and the public square, as now more than ever, we need to be grounded in the truth of God's word. The Center for Biblical Worldview provides amazing written resources for a wide range of relevant issues, including biblical stances on voting, religious liberty, abortion, marriage, and sexuality. Each of these topics comes as a free downloadable PDF version, abbreviated version, and Spanish translation, along with a prayer guide. To access this written series or to sign up for the Center for Biblical Worldview's monthly newsletter, visit frc.org worldview. Did you know that from as early as 12 weeks, and certainly by 20 weeks, an unborn child can feel pain? Did you know the issue of pornography is growing among women? Did you know that pornography, sex trafficking, and abortion are all linked and on the rise across the globe? Issues such as pornography, human trafficking, drug legalization, and abortion are all violations of human dignity and have resulted in the devaluation of human life in our culture. Family Research Council stands firm on the principle that every life has value, ought to be respected, and has been designed for a unique purpose. Educate yourself on the harms of pornography, human trafficking, and abortion so that you can offer hope and help. Learn more at frc.org forward slash life. Welcome back to Washington Watch. I'm Joseph Backholm sitting in for Tony today. Great to be with you. As we've covered on Washington Watch, corporate America has become increasingly hostile to the biblical worldview. Leading the charge in this effort has been the Disney Corporation, which publicly battled Florida Governor Ron DeSantis and his state's Parental Rights in Education Act. But returning Disney CEO Bob Iger now expresses regret that Disney engaged in such a fight. I was sorry to see us um, uh, dragged into that battle, um, and I have no idea exactly what its ramifications are in terms of um, the business itself. Will other corporations agree that staying out of the culture wars is a winning strategy? Joining me now to discuss this is Justin Danoff, head of corporate governance at Strive Asset Management. Justin, good to see you today. It's always nice to talk with you, Joseph. Your reaction to Bob Iger's comments there? Well, I find it pretty interesting, right? Because I, I can take a look at the situation and say, meet the new boss, same as the old boss. Because what Chapik had been doing was really picking up on the heels of Bob Iger, who he preceded, right? And so I think mm. the real difference is Iger won in some of his political spats where Chapik lost. And I really do think it comes down to something that simple. So when Mr. Chapik got involved in going and pushing progressive policies, such as fighting the parental rights bill in Florida, who did he lose to? He lost to Governor DeSantis. And when it came to pushing programming that was extreme, like the movie Lightyear, who did he lose to? Well, he lost to the public because the audiences didn't just didn't show up to see the film. And so I, I think the difference here is that when Mr. Iger was at the helm of Disney, he too politicized the company, but he did so with a stronger hand and a winning hand in some instances. What do I mean by that? Well, in 2016, when Disney opposed legislation to restore religious freedom in the state of uh, Georgia, for example, well, Governor Nathan Deal vetoed the bill. When in North Carolina, there was a big debate over a so-called bathroom bill, HB2, North Carolina suffered real economic harm when Disney got in that fight opposing HB2, right? And so I, I think that there's a big difference between um, frankly, winners and losers in these scenarios. And so I'm a little bit concerned that Iger is uh, playing a little bit of rope-a-dope by claiming that he's upset that Disney got involved in that fight. I think he's just upset that the leader at the time, Bob Chapik, wasn't victorious. 
Well, there's another company in addition to Disney that is uh, finding themselves perhaps in even some uh, some hot water because of their political cooperation with the Chinese government. Tim Cook, the CEO of Apple, he's on Capitol Hill today. They've been accused of essentially taking commands from the Chinese Communist Party by stopping the ability to airdrop of protesters. And that's a way that people use iPhones to communicate with each other outside of the internet that the Chinese government highly regulates there. Is there any truth to that rumor? Is Apple, in fact, cooperating with the Chinese communists? Yeah, the only um, disagreement I would have with your statement is when you said essentially agreeing with the CCP. He is doing the bidding of the CCP. Uh, Right now, Airdrop works everywhere in the world except one location, And that is China, where there is now a time clock on how long airdrop can work. Because, of course, the CCP cuts off normal communication channels through social media. Um, The Internet is highly regulated and restricted over there so that everyday citizens can't communicate with each other. And so in the last few weeks, when we've seen large uprising happening, not just in one or two locations, but in many locations throughout China, airdrop was primarily the means by which the citizens of that country were finally rising up um, to push back largely against COVID restrictions um, and the really draconian lockdowns that have led to deaths of citizens that were locked in buildings where there was a fire. Um, And and the citizenry finally were uprising, and Tim Cook is helping uh, Xi Jinping put a stop to that. Now, tell us how cynical this is. Is this just a function of Xi Jinping calls Tim Cook or their people talk to each other? And he says, if you don't do what we're telling you to do, we're going to cut off your ability to sell iPhones here in China. And they say, sir, yes, sir. Well, the, the cynical nature is hard to um, fathom, frankly. It, it's so large here, Joseph, right? Because it's not just Disney and Apple. It's the NBA It's frankly some of um, our defense contractors here in the United States that are beholden to CCP because supply chain issues, because labor force participation. And they have such, over the last two decades, intricately tied themselves to so many American businesses that they are beholden without Xi Jinping needing to pick up any sort of phone anywhere. Related story dealing with Twitter, we are with Apple. We hear rumors that they are about, they are threatening at least, or maybe discussing removing Twitter from the Apple store because Twitter will not censor information. But of course, they are helping the Chinese communists censor information. Are these things true? Yeah, if it wasn't for double standards, uh, you know, Apple would have no standards at all. So it, there, there is a lot of rumor. I don't have any inside knowledge more than anybody else, but it does seem clear that Apple wants to do what the big tech uh, monopolies teamed up to do to Parler uh, and do this exact same thing to Elon Musk and Twitter now that he has declared that Twitter is once again a free speech zone. Because, of course, we can't have free speech and debate over things like COVID here in the United States of America or, you know, the efficacy of the jab or anything like that. Um, that, that, that shouldn't be allowed, uh, because the elite ruling class should dictate everything that's said. But if Chinese citizens want to communicate with one another to speak out and protest against a truly authoritarian regime, Apple simply can't allow that. Justin, in about 30 seconds, is there a role for Congress in this or does the market just have to work itself out? Oh, there's a role for both. Absolutely. Uh, I do think that if Apple decides that it's got a monopolistic enough power that it can unilaterally end Twitter's existence, I do think that Congress should take a look um, into antitrust issues. However, that's only one part of the equation. I think market actors, uh, asset managers who own both companies need to get involved. Uh, Asset managers that are big asset managers of Disney need to get involved with them and to tell them to focus on their customers and on their employees and on the consumers rather than politicizing their businesses. Justin Danoff, thanks so much for your time. Thank you, Justin. Coming up next, we'll consider the worldview implications of the Disrespect for Marriage Act and some curious arguments made in on its behalf. Stay with us. 
Are you a university student? Do you know a university student, specifically one who wants to grow as a Christian leader to positively influence public policy and the culture? Look no further. Family Research Council has a life-changing 12 to 15 week internship program that has prepared and equipped students to take the next step in their professional journey. With a speaker series focusing on careers and callings, lectures from prominent conservative leaders, and weekly biblical worldview training, students will grow in personal and professional development. Interns have the opportunity to work in policy, communications, event planning, and more. They will gain real-world experience working directly with our experts who will guide them in pursuing careers of influence so that they can make a difference wherever God calls. This paid internship offers fully funded housing in the heart of downtown D.C., giving you the chance to experience our nation's capital. Visit frc.org internships to apply. What is biblical masculinity? In our culture of gender confusion, there aren't many examples of godly manhood. Men, husbands, and fathers need to find a model of godly manhood, leadership, and strength. But where can they find it in our culture? Stand Courageous Men's Ministry was created to help men find this model of godly manhood and to develop a strong biblical character, cultivate positive habits, build and rebuild relationships, and make commitments that will move men closer to God's good purpose and design. Men who will stand courageous. Join us at a Stand Courageous Men's Conference to discuss critical aspects of masculinity. These conferences are led by men who understand the issues men face. They unpack our role as a defender, provider, instructor, and battle buddy so that we can make an influence as a chaplain inside and outside the home. Learn more and find a Stand Courageous event near you at StandCourageous.com. Welcome back to Washington Watch. I'm Joseph Backholm sitting in Fort Tony. Reminder that the website is TonyPerkins.com. As we continue to absorb the week of yesterday's Senate vote against the institution of marriage, many Christians are asking how they can publicly live out their faith in a world increasingly hostile to it. But we, and we may have reached an inflection point as some self-identified evangelical leaders came out in support of the so-called Respect for Marriage Act. Their arguments sound awfully familiar to those of us who have been following the abortion issue when they say, I am personally against it, but politically for it. Our next guest has written about such a public position and calling it a disaster. Joining me now to discuss this is Denny Burke, professor of biblical studies at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. He's also the president of the Council on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. Denny, welcome to Washington Watch. Hey, thank you so much for having me on. Well, first, I want to play this clip from Cynthia Lummis, a senator from Wyoming. She gave one of the more interesting defenses of this bill. Here's what she had to say right before expressing that she intended to vote for it. Let's play clip three. The Bible teaches that marriage is between one man and one woman. I accept God's word, including God's word as to the definition of marriage. I support my church's adherence to that biblical pronouncement. I support Wyoming statute, which codifies that definition. Denny Burke, how do you get from there to, so let's redefine it. Well, the the argument that people are making right now is pretty much just a reincarnation of the Mario Cuomo argument that he made back in 1984 to justify Catholics voting for abortion. He made it, I think it was a speech actually at at Notre Dame University where he made the case that even though one can be personally or privately religiously committed to uh, the pro-life position, uh, as far as public policy is concerned, uh, you could also hold to um, the pro-choice position. And so he made that publicly, privately against, but publicly for argument. He mainstreamed it within the Democratic Party, and it got mainstreamed really amongst just a lot of uh, Catholic Christians who thought that, you know, you could kind of ignore the church's teaching on that particular issue uh, on abortion when it comes to public policy, even though you may have some sort of privately held view. And so what the argument that you're seeing now from a lot of um, professing Christians is that we can do the same thing with marriage, that we can have a private religious belief about marriage, but not have that translate into what our support is for particular public policies. And in this case, this the so-called Respect for Marriage Act, which just passed yesterday. 
So is it a good argument or not for people, those of us who are trying to think biblically about this issue? What's wrong with the idea of saying, hey, well, the world is different. They're not all Christians. I'm not going to impose my narrow belief of marriage on everybody else. I'll hold that for myself and my family, but uh, give them room to do what they want to do. Well, someone's view of marriage is going to be imposed. There's no question about that. The question is, is what's the right view? And if, if you're a believer, marriage is special uh, to us because we believe that it's a part of God's created order. So it's not just um, a, a political position. We, we believe that marriage is a pre-political institution. Before there was any government, before there was a church even, there was marriage defined as one man and one woman in a heterosexual union for life. That's what it's designed to be. And our laws are they're not always the right laws, okay? I mean, so sometimes we enact foolish laws, but to the degree that our laws reflect that fundamental understanding, which is true about marriage, to that degree, our laws are just. To the degree that those laws depart from that, depart from that, our laws are unjust. And and so what, what's happening now, we already had the Supreme Court decision from 2015 um, legalizing gay marriage, but now we've had senators take the step to pass and enact gay marriage and to make it a part of of the legal tradition of the United States of America. So it, it, it's not all the way through yet. My, my understanding is that the House still has to uh, approve it and before it goes to the president's desk, but I think it's a fait accompli at this point. But as Christians, we, we can't live that kind of divided, have that kind of a divided mindset when it comes to the way we think about public policy. If you believe that God's word is true about what marriage is, that means you believe that that's good for us and that it's not good for human flourishing, for families, for children to redefine that institution, even for people who aren't Christians. So we're not holding to this because we want to harm people. We want to help people. We want for what makes for the most human good and flourishing. And that means one man, one woman marriage. Denny Burke, Senator Lummis seemed to have a uh, response to that. Let's play clip five. The term marriage now has two meanings, the biblical and the secular. The Respect for Marriage Act, by design, references neither definition. It uses the term individuals. Danny, that's quite a proclamation. Marriage now has two meanings. There's a biblical one and a legal one. What's your response to that? Well, marriage may have two meanings to your ordinary, average ordinary American, but it doesn't to God. Uh, In other words, the nature of marriage doesn't change with shifting mores and shifting opinions. Right? It's it's a fixed point. It has an objective nature to it. The the nature of marriage is is even written in just the design. may have frozen up there for a second we'll try to get denny back what he was saying there was the fact that marriage and this really is a question for believers as we discuss marriage and this idea that there's a biblical definition and a legal definition the question is not is there disagreement over this the answer to that is obviously yes the question for christians is which position am I going to take? Am I going to take the secular proposition that there are two separate kinds of marriage, or am I going to accept God's definition that there's only one? We'll come back with more from Denny Burke when we get his connection, right? Right on the other side of the break. Stay with us here on Washington. What is biblical masculinity? In our culture of gender confusion, there aren't many examples of godly manhood. Men, husbands, and fathers need to find a model of godly manhood, leadership, and strength. But where can they find it in our culture? Stand Courageous Men's Ministry was created to help men find this model of godly manhood and to develop a strong biblical character, cultivate positive habits, build and rebuild relationships, and make commitments that will move men closer to God's good purpose and design. Men who will stand courageous. Join us at a Stand Courageous Men's Conference to discuss critical aspects of masculinity. These conferences are led by men who understand the issues men face. They unpack our role as a defender, provider, instructor, and battle buddy so that we can make an influence as a chaplain inside and outside the home. Learn more and find a Stand Courageous event near you at StandCourageous.com. With the NK- 
increase in tech censorship of conservatives and Christians, Family Research Council created a tech subscription platform to be sure we don't go completely dark due to censorship. It is important to us that we stay connected with you and that you stay informed. So if we get canceled, you can still access updates on faith, family, and freedom. How? Just text STAND to 67742 to sign up for our text alerts, and you will get FRC's content straight to your phone. Again, just text STAND to 67742, and you will get alerts on the biggest stories of the day. With just a simple text, always have access to our content, and stay informed and connected with like-minded community. Text STAND to 67742. That's STAND to 67742. Are you a university student? Do you know a university student, specifically one who wants to grow as a Christian leader to positively influence public policy and the culture? Look no further. Family Research Council has a life-changing 12 to 15 week internship program that has prepared and equipped students to take the next step in their professional journey. With a speaker series focusing on careers and callings, lectures from prominent conservative leaders, and weekly biblical worldview training, students will grow in personal and professional development. Interns have the opportunity to work in policy, communications, event planning, and more. They will gain real-world experience working directly with our experts who will guide them in pursuing careers of influence so that they can make a difference wherever God calls. This paid internship offers fully funded housing in the heart of downtown D.C., giving you the chance to experience our nation's capital. Visit frc.org slash internships to apply. Welcome back to Washington Watch. I'm Joseph Backlund sitting in for Tony. And we are continuing our conversation with Denny Burke from the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary and also the Council on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood about the Senate's passage of the Disrespect for Marriage Act this week. Denny, welcome back. Thank you so much. Glad to be here. Now, there on this question of how the church should be reacting to this, one of the arguments that we hear and is, is this recognition that there's a lot of sin in the church, and that's a point that we have to grant. And so the conclusion is that because there are so many problems within the church, sexual sin and otherwise, we need to keep our mouths shut when it comes to public issues until we have our own house cleaned up. What would you say to that? Well, I'm, you're not going to hear me arguing against the church having more integrity. I do believe that churches are, by and large, not as consistent as they need to be. We need to have reflected in our teaching and discipline in our churches a commitment to marriage as it's biblically defined, which means we're not just concerned about the heterosexual norm of marriage. We're also concerned about the permanence norm of marriage, which means we have a stake in when divorces are allowed and when they're not allowed and when, when there's sexual immorality with running rampant within the church, we care about all of those things. So I'm not arguing here for inconsistency. I think we need to be consistent across the board with what the Bible teaches about marriage. And so it, the Bible teaches that marriage is a man leaving his father and mother and clinging to his wife. And so that the two become one flesh. There's a formation of a new family, and they're in a covenant commitment together. And Jesus said, what God has joined together, let no man put asunder. Any other kind of sexual bonding or activity outside of that one flesh union of marriage, the Bible says is sinful. And so we're, if you're a consistent Christian, and if you're in a church that cares about what the Bible teaches, that means you're going to be concerned about the whole panoply of sexual aberrations that we see happening within our own congregations and within the within the culture. But that doesn't mean that until everybody is sinless, we stop caring about the public meaning of marriage. We just don't we can't do that and we shouldn't do that. It will only lead to further disorder and to further uh, to less human flourishing in our nation. And, and while, of course, all of us as believers need to pursue diligently and and 
uh, as a first priority, our own personal holiness, the standard that until all the sin is out of the church, we can't speak prophetically to what's going on in the culture is not a realistic one because, of course, the church will never be sinless in the absolute sense. And so we, I think this is a case where we can uh, walk and chew gum. But Danny, I think one of the things that we have to recognize is the fact that public opinion has changed dramatically on this issue in the last 10 years, in the last 30 years, to illustrate that. We saw Chuck Schumer, the majority leader in the Senate, who led this effort to repeal DOMA and uh, pass this disrespect for marriage law. He voted for the Defense of Marriage Act in 1996 when it was passed into law, as did Joe Biden, who was then Senator Joe Biden, who will presumably is prepared to sign this bill repealing the Defense of Marriage Act. What what has happened that has led to this dramatic shift, both from our elected representatives and, as polling indicates, uh, from the public at large? Yeah, Americans, by and large, the polling began to change somewhere between 2008 and 2012. By 2012, you begin to see a majority uh, of Americans recording in polls that they are in favor of gay marriage. And, of course, that was most prominently reflected in the fact that the president of the United States at the time then came out, uh, President Barack Obama came out in favor of gay marriage, whereas up until then, um, he had been against it. And it, it, it was really interesting that his, his public change on the issue happened to correspond with the polling on the issue. <laughs> but but the, deeper, the, dip, the deeper issue there is that public opinion has been changing for a long time on this. And Christians just need to be aware that the world that we're living in now is not the same one that we lived in five years ago, 10 years ago, 20, 20 years ago. Uh, the younger generations do not hold what their grandparents held when it comes to the nature and definition of marriage. Part of that is a reflection of the secularization of America, but that doesn't negate the um, our um, responsibility as Christians to bear witness to what the truth is and to care about the good and flourishing of our neighbors. And the good and flourishing of our neighbors uh, will be reflected in laws that honor marriage, not laws that gut and destroy marriage. Do you think that shift in public pol- public opinion is a permanent one? And does that even matter when it comes to what the obligation of the church is? Well, I think it I think it does matter, but I, I do think that there is kind of a, a spiral relationship between public opinion and the law. In one sense, there is uh, the law is a reflection of of mores at a given time and place. That that that's unavoidable, but unavoidable. But I also think, and most people recognize that the law is a teacher. In other words, what we what we encode into law becomes a teacher in terms of people's consciences and what they believe to be right and wrong, what they believe the ideal is, and what pro- provides human flourishing. So, I we're arguing that we should have the law teaching a healthy view of marriage for the sake of families, for the sake of children who need to have fathers and mothers. We think that's good for everybody, whether or not they ever become a Christian. And so we want public policies that reflect those priorities and that reflect the good and flourishing that's available to people on a biblical definition of marriage. I I would agree with that. And and Denny, I also... I'm hopeful, and maybe this is just me being a a hopeless optimist, but I believe that every lie is eventually exposed as a lie, and sometimes it takes a long time. Do you think we can have confidence? And we just saw this happen on the abortion issue, right? It took 50 years from Roe to to the time where we uh, came to our senses, at least legally, and certainly culturally, we have a lot of of room to go yet. But do you think we will see the pendulum swing on this issue as we have seen it swing on the abortion issue in the last 50 years? I think this one's harder. Uh, I mean, uh, if I'm being a just from where I'm sitting, I think this one is harder. And I think that I, I don't know if there's going to be a sort of a natural pendulum swing back the other way anytime soon. I hope there is. I think when it comes to transgender issues, I do think that there's going to be a reaction against that. I think that there's still common sense, um, rational appeals that we can make um, to our our secular neighbors on the issue of life. This one has got is really becoming more difficult because, you know, your average American views this as a justice issue now. They view it as a moral issue now and a moral imperative now, which means we have our work cut cut out for us. Long before public policy um, is enacted, we've got to make a persuasive case uh, to people's hearts and minds. And 
that's going to be very difficult in the current situation that we're living in. So I'm not hopeless. I think that can happen. I'm just, I just don't know that it's going to happen anytime soon. Well, uh, that's fair. And with respect to eternity, who knows what soon is. But that's we right, certainly have our right. work cut out for us. Uh, but God is not surprised by this. He is not despairing. Uh, so we need not either. Denny Burke, thanks so much for your time. Thank you so much. It's my pleasure. Coming up now, we're going to, I want to keep talking about this issue and what this means. And last night's disappointing Senate vote codifying the redefinition of marriage. It definitely has implications as we were talking about culturally, as the law is a teacher, uh, but it also has implications legally. And among the more troubling aspects is the claim made by several senators that the bill does contain religious liberty protections. Is that true or not? Joining me now to help provide some clarity to address that is Travis Weber. He's our vice president for public and government affairs at Family Research Council. Travis, good to see you. Thank you. Now, you addressed this last night with Tony on the Pray Vote Stand broadcast, uh, but for those who may have missed it, here's a clip of Republican Wyoming Senator Cynthia Lummis claiming that the bill does have religious liberty protections. Let's play clip seven. This bill is intended to enshrine a national policy of respect for all views surrounding marriage and to enact some of the strongest religious liberty protections since the Religious Freedom Restoration Act in 1993. This legislation also ensures that religious liberty will have more of a central role in future debates in our courts and in, and in the halls of Congress. Travis Weber, is this some of the strongest religious freedom protections we've seen since 1993? Hardly. I mean, these, these remarks are foolish and dangerous, and in addition to just being wrong. You know, the bill uh, inciting this as somehow national public policy in favor of uh, all views, she cites one very weak statement in the findings portion of the bill. But the reality is we have to look at the debate surrounding this issue. Senators, including Senator Lovis, had opportunity to protect religious liberty by supporting Senator Lee's amendment. They failed to do so, willfully chose to not support his amendment, and instead agreed with a, a totally weak um, a section of language that they claim supports religious liberty, but in reality would support religious educational institutions and churches only if they're engaged in the principal purpose of furthering religion, only in the area of solemnization of marriages, leaving out all sorts of issues, basically everything we've seen over the past seven years since Obergefell, including the Jack Phillips type cases and many other situations, leaving those hanging in the wind. So willfully doing this and then going onto the floor as she did after the vote and saying uh, this supports religious liberty. It's not only astounding, it's foolish and dangerous because we're now going to be paving the way towards more religious freedom violations, especially if people believe Senator Lummis and think this is somehow some sort of protection, thus allowing their guard down. But they can't do that. We have to be clear-eyed about the lack of protections in this bill. Um, I, I hope I'm wrong, but I fear that we will see challenges that this bill uh, fuels in the months and years ahead. Travis, I think you make a really important point there because the proponents of the bill say they are concerned about religious freedom and they threw out some language that they claimed offered those protections. And then the people that they said they wanted to protect said, hey, here's what we need in terms of religious freedom and protections. And then they said, no, you can't have that. Is that just prima facie evidence that they don't really want to protect the people that they claim they are trying to protect? It could be. It's either a willful denial of a refusal to protect them or a, a severe delusion that uh, somehow th they're wrong and, and the people pushing this weak language in the bill were right, uh, you know, because there were people pushing it. And, um, and, and we've heard that, that somehow this is a protection. Um, I find that hard to believe, though, in light of the, the length and the level of debate and discussion that has surrounded this bill in the past few months. Senator Lee was very clear, sending a letter to his colleagues, asking them to support his amendment, showing why it's necessary. There were three 60-vote threshold votes on this bill in the Senate in the last week. All 12 Republican senators who voted against, uh, voted for this bill, voted for it three times. Three times they sided with Democrats, sided against religious freedom, 
uh, against all the concerns that we and other groups have been raising, um, I find it hard to believe they, they really, um, they, this was anything other than a willful uh, throwing of religious freedom under the bus. And what they've done here is uh, they want to claim this is a great protection. The reality is we were better off without this bill and without the supposed protection that it is. The bill legalizes same-sex marriage legislatively as a national, that will be used as a national public policy marker, throws in this weak language in the bill. This language is, is like, you know, it's a little bump in the face of a massive boulder of this bill. You know, and so in, when, when recognizing that reality, uh, you can't claim that little bump is somehow an improvement because that boulder is going to smash whatever protections this bill offers, which are very minimal. That situation is not a win-win-win. You know? And so these senators trying to explain this away are trying to really make the Christian and religious freedom advocacy community believe that they really meant well. Uh, we're not buying it. We can't be buying it. As the bill goes back to the House, House members need to understand there are serious problems with this. They can't buy this as religious freedom protecting. And uh, the Republic, no Republican should be supporting this in the House. Uh, last vote was rushed. It was quick. But by now, the debate and the issues are known, and, and House members need to take a stand against this bill. Travis, since the vote in the Senate, there have been reports that up to 30 Republican senators would have been inclined to vote for this, but for the public reaction to the bill. What's your reaction to that? Well, if, if true, that that's alarming in a sense of those senators being out of touch with their constituents and perhaps too in touch with wanting to be thought well of and and just the wanting to have a pat on the back uh, from the circles of elite in opinion in which they're running. Yeah, obviously, we don't, we don't know how this would have played out in an alternative scenario, but I am concerned that, um, you know, senators heard from their constituents on this one, and yet they chose to disregard those constituents. And you had Senators Sullivan and Lummis sending, uh, putting out lengthy defenses of why this somehow protected religious freedom that obviously required work to put together, and they were citing authorities, including uh, religious groups claiming to, to represent the mantle of religious liberty, the, the Council of Christian Colleges and Universities, uh, the Seventh-day Adventist, and others, uh, the LDS Church. Um, so they're going through all the work to defend their, their position. That shows they were hearing from people concerned about religious liberty and were trying to explain it away. Um, I, I'm concerned that, that we would be in a situation where even more senators would consider supporting this. You know, but as Denny was saying in the previous segment, we also have our work cut out for us in explaining the value of our positions. We believe what we believe because it's the right thing, but it also flir right. causes flourishing to society. We need to get Travis, to work explaining that. We've got less than a minute left, about 30 seconds. It moves to the House now. What can people do as it advances? Yeah, we, we, uh, they need to call the House, call the Capitol switchboard number for the House, let their member know, oppose this bill. Do not be deluded in thinking it protects religious liberty. Uh, they can also check out frcaction.org slash marriage. We're here to help you engage. Tell the House members, uh, oppose this bill. frcaction.org slash marriage. Travis Weber, thanks for your time. Thank you. Friends, we thank you for being with us. This is a critical issue that we continue to monitor, and we know you care about it as well. We also know that God cares about it. Truth always matters, always matters, and our position about truth always matters. Thanks for being with us. We'll see you tomorrow here on Washington Watch. Until then, fear God and nothing else. Washington Watch with Tony Perkins is brought to you by Family Research Council and is entirely listener-supported. Portions of the show discussing candidates are brought to you by Family Research Council Action. For more information on anything you've heard today or to find out how you can partner with us in our ongoing efforts to promote faith, family, and freedom, visit TonyPerkins.com. Also, to leave a comment about Washington Watch, call our watch line at 1-866-372-7234. That's 1-866-372-7234.